I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go with another really exciting show for today. My guest for today's episode is Monica Ostroff. And wait until you hear what she has to say. I thought long and hard about how I wanted to introduce Monica's episode. And I think there are two things that I want to point out. First of all, and by the way, I am not saying this is everybody with an eating disorder, but I have many, many times come into contact with people who say, I'm not sick enough yet. When I hit rock bottom, that's when I'll do it. Oh, someone else's story is so much more intense. Mine, mine isn't that, that bad yet. I am here to say, first of all, there is no need to be the sickest. This is, this is a competition that nobody wins. And I myself did not get nearly as sick as some of the guests I've had on this episode. And I thank God for that every single day. So I want to make sure that when we talk about Monica's story, because it's intense, people don't hear, oh, I haven't gotten that sick yet. That's not the point. And please don't ever try that because quite honestly, sick enough, the best at an eating disorder are the ones who die. The other thing I want to point out is how powerful Monica's resilience was to get through this eating disorder. This is evidence that no matter how long you have it, And no matter how limited your resources are, if you want recovery, full recovery, to thrive in life, you will achieve it. And that's why Monica's story is so beautiful. All right, everyone. I hope you're excited to listen to this one as excited as I was to record it. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am incredibly honored to introduce you all to my colleague, Monica Ostroff. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Monica, I am thrilled to have you here, and I know the guests are going to be thrilled. The audience is going to be thrilled when they hear all the amazing things that you have to say. So Monica, 
Could you introduce yourself, let the listeners know a little bit about who you are and, and your amazing work, and then we'll get, we'll jump a little bit more into the podcast. Sure. You're so good to me. So I have been working in the field for a little over 20 years now. Um, I started out opening a program at Hampstead Hospital running a residential and partial program and then moved into private practice. And from there opened, I actually opened a few intensive outpatient programs for addiction. Actually, I took a little break from eating disorders for three years. And then I was able to help Seda Abrahimi open the Cambridge Eating Disorder Center of New Hampshire, and then moved on to help HCA Parkland Medical Center open Reflections Eating Disorder Treatment Center also in New Hampshire. And I'm now the executive director of my favorite organization, the Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association in Newton, Mass. Which, by the way, hands down, is an incredible organization. Meta, I, I can't say enough about Meta. So, and I can't say enough about their choice and people that they hire. You being one of them. Oh, thank you. I've been a huge fan of Meta for like the 26 years they've been uh, in existence. And so it's been really kind of amazing to be able to lead the organization. It's a wonderful organization to work with. And I am actually going to give a little plug and say to anybody who is struggling or a support person, go to the website. It is a plethora of information and support. So Monica, I am so glad to have you. I've known you for quite some time and I've always been impressed with your work. It's so interesting. Listening to all the places that you've opened, I thought, God, I, I've known all this about Monica, but just hearing you say it, it's not only amazing in the field, the professional field, but it is also amazing where you started from. And so I don't always ask guests to go into their history of their eating disorder, but I am going to ask you to give us a little background because your background is powerful. I want listeners to know, regardless of how long they've had their eating disorder for, what their diagnosis is, if they want recovery, they can get it. I also want to do a little cautionary statement before by saying you do not have to go through the tragedies that you did in order to turn it around and move towards recovery. So with that grand introduction, Monica, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I, uh, my eating, I actually was a, kind of a late bloomer when it came to an eating disorder. I was pretty okay um, until college, to tell you the truth. But I had a what is today considered to be a severe enduring eating disorder. Um, I had anorexia um, with features of bulimia. Now we, you know, have a diagnostic category for that. But I basically my eating disorder was born out of a lot of trauma. And where I had typically been able to use school to cope, you know, I sort of built this life in school and did really well there. When I got to college, there was actually additional trauma that kind of happened on top of my regular trauma. And I think that was probably a little bit too much looking back on it. And so I developed an eating disorder as a way of coping with my life. And as many of you know, it works extraordinarily well until it doesn't. I did not get really, really ill until I was actually in law school. 
and I left law school to be hospitalized for the first time and experienced some treatment trauma in addition. Probably, I'm going to kind of do the Reader's Digest version of this, right, which is the really long story short is I ended up losing my mother's really good Blue Cross insurance, which left me able to only access Medicaid, um, which meant that I also couldn't access any specialized care at all for my eating disorder. So I got even worse or sicker and ended up basically homeless, eventually on Medicare and disability. I lived in hospitals for about five years and uh, eventually was able to get to a place of, I will call now quasi-recovery um, before I then relapsed and then had what I consider to be my long-term recovery, uh, thanks in part to a magnificent dietitian in Baltimore, believe it or not. And, you know, there's a lot of other struggles in there too, when you're dealing with an eating disorder and PTSD. And as you can imagine, um, with homelessness comes more trauma. There's just a lot of trauma, like lots of trauma. But, you know, probably what's more important is that regardless, from my perspective, regardless of all of that, of being homeless, of struggling with extensive self-injury and a severe eating disorder, um, my life is really good. I have a really good life. And I don't struggle with an eating disorder. I'd struggled a lot. You know, we have this conversation, right, uh, Karen, in the field about like, are you recovered? Are you in recovery? Like, what is, like, what are you? And for a very long time, I've said I'm recovered. And then I, there's a woman who lives up in uh, Conway, New Hampshire, who is, who, she talks about herself as being in remission. And I actually really liked that. I hadn't heard that before. And so I'm like, I kind of like that. It lets you know, it's kind of like, I think about it as like the chicken pox virus, right? I suppose it could always come back if things fell apart or you missed the, the warning signs. Um, but I've, I recognize the places in which my brain is different. And I make a lot of accommodations for that. And I'm very protective of my recovery. I feel like I just went all over the map. You absolutely did not. No, no, no. What I want to ask is how has your experience, homelessness, being diagnosed chronic, Medicaid, things like that, how has that influenced your passion and the work that you do today? Because I think most people, when they've had their own experience, tend to maybe gravitate to focusing on, on issues surrounding that. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that? You know, it, it's actually shifted and changed over the years. When I initially got involved in the work, I got involved in the work because I was really angry about the treatment trauma that I had suffered and the way in which people spoke to me. I literally, my very first hospitalization, I had a um, psychiatrist, I guess he was a psychologist actually, sit at the edge of my bed and say, you know, we know that all people with eating disorders are manipulative. And so we know you are too, and we're not going to actually believe much of what you have to say. That was my introduction to treatment. Listeners can't see me now, but my face, my mouth has dropped. Go ahead. First thing that was said to me, you know, and the, and there was a lot more things that were said, things like, you know, the, with a history like yours, the most you have to hope for are periods of remission, 
you know, periods where you're doing kind of okay. And then, you know, you're, you're going to have this your whole life kind of thing. And throughout one stay in particular, I had some really strong ideas about what might be helpful to me. Like I really, my heart center really craved some gentleness and compassion, uh, some space to figure out me, you know, and to really begin to understand how all the trauma in my life may have maybe playing into this, but I was never afforded that opportunity and was told instead, every time I brought up, you know, maybe wanting to do something a little differently that I was treatment resistant and being manipulative. So anyway, long story short is a lot of the things that I thought would be helpful ended up being really helpful and pivotal in my recovery and my ability to be a high functioning human being and a whole human being. So I was pretty angry, you know, when I realized that, you know, if people had been able to listen and maybe give the patient some credence and potentially knowing herself, maybe better than they knew her, in this case, me, maybe my struggle didn't have to be quite as long. So I really wanted to get involved in the field to affect change and make care delivery more compassionate, more respectful, more empowering to allow patients and clients to have that voice where they say, I think this is what's going to work for me and help them kind of separate out, you know, how much of that is coming from your heart center, how much of that is coming from your eating disorder, because we know eating disorders like to try to stay alive in there, right? That's where it began. But as I moved forward in my career and began working with more and more people, there were other things, you know, that, that started really fueling my passion. It wasn't just ensuring compassionate, effective, respectful, empowering care. It was access issues. Like right now, I'm all about access issues. Like why is care a privilege? You know, it shouldn't be. And throughout my time in the field and having worked in different settings, you know, certainly in hospital settings and higher levels of care, I was also privy to some upsetting conversations that other professionals would have in respect to clients who had histories maybe similar to mine, like the way in which those people were spoken about, the, um, I don't know, the prognosis, I guess I'll call it, that they were given was always kind of bleak. And it felt really important to me to sit in you know, multidisciplinary treatment team and sitting at the table and being that person's voice as much as I could to say, hmm, I don't know. I think, you know, if any of us were in that person's position right now, I'm not sure we'd be doing any better. And let's go with the fact that people do the very best that they can with the resources that they have available to them at the time. These things that this person is doing is a strength and we just have to reshape it. We have to help them reshape it and let's afford them some respect. So um, throughout time, you know, I've been that person when I was at um, Parkland and I was the manager of outpatient behavioral health programs, I led reflections, but I also led the outpatient mental health partial program. And I also led the inpatient psychiatric acute care social work department. So it was not uncommon and people would talk about this. You could find me sitting on the floor with a patient in detox talking to them while they were laying down, like waiting for some of their medication to kick in to make them feel better. It's who, it's who I am, and it's it's been hard sometimes to figure out care delivery for groups of people. Sometimes treating in a group is really hard because it's hard to individualize, but 
I guess the, you know, between my personal experience and all of the different settings that I've been able to work in, you know, I still believe deeply in connecting people back to that inner wisdom that they all have. They're just disconnected from it. Being compassionate, being respectful and empowering, treating people like people, no matter where they come from or where they are and believing in people's capacity for change and making sure that everybody gets access. There are so many things that I want to touch on with what you just said. First of all, I just want to say you speak from and with your heart, Monica. And I I have a little bit of tears in my eyes and, and beautiful tears. I'm not saying it like as a sad story. I just listening to you speak and at the risk of sounding conceited or cocky, I, I feel like you and I are very similar. I view the client the same way. And it is from a heart-centered place. And you sit, you're sitting on the floor with that client who's laying there because the medication hadn't kicked in is because you see the human first. A human being is struggling. What they have layered on top, whether it's addiction, eating disorder, trauma, are things that have happened to them. I, again, I don't mean to like turn this to myself, but I pride myself in that that's how I view people. And that's also where when you said, if you're paying attention, you can somewhat decipher when a client is speaking from their healthy self and not their eating disorder self, when they say, you know what, I know this is the protocol, but this is what works for me. As a connected clinician, you, you, you can see that. Listen, we sometimes are wrong. We're off. We get fooled. It happens. But this is another thing. I, having trained under Carolyn Costin, when I used to run treatment centers, I would say to the group, there is a structure to our program, no doubt. There is a level system. There are rules. It is very black and white. That's the foundation. Then we look at each person individually and say, within this structure, what is specifically going to work for you? That has changed clients' lives because they are finally seen as a human first, not a diagnosis. And then there's one other thing I want to point out and and then I'm going to let you talk. But first of all, forgive me for being judgmental, but shame on that psychologist who the first thing he said to you was, we know this is a disorder of manipulation and, and I'm paraphrasing, we're not going to believe you. I have said to clients in the past, oh my God, of course, manipulation is a huge part of the eating disorder. You though are not a manipulative, excuse me, everyone, manipulative person. When you get frightened, the eating disorder steps in. So I'm not going to deny that there's manipulation in the eating disorder, but I'm not going to sit down with a client and look them in the face, in the eyes, in the soul and say, oh, it's all manipulation. I'm not going to believe anything you say right there. You've lost the client's trust. 
you've broken the connection and you've pretty much damaged the the relationship. Makes me think about Marsha Linehan's work, right? Where she says, if you're going to label clients as manipulative, it's going to be really hard for you to help that person because it colors your own feelings about that person sitting in front of you. And I, I've always kind of hated the word manipulative, probably because of how frequently it used to be used. You know, like my treatment was back in the 90s. Um, and we've come a long way, thankfully. But I think a lot about, you know, it's survival. And I, some people who are listening might know that um, in the late 90s, I wrote the book Anorexia Nervosa, A Guide to Recovery with Lindsay Hall. And one of the things that I was talking about in there was this concept of, you know, your eating disorder, my eating disorder, your eating disorder, the people listening, your eating disorders, were a resource when there were no other resources available. And how amazing that we found a resource at that time. And isn't it amazing how it actually did help? Let's honor it for that. Let's give it that space. And let's also now work together to find a way to move forward, to do more than just survive in life, but to thrive in life in ways that don't simultaneously damage our body, mind, and spirit, right? So it's kind of like all those things that happened, all the things that an eating disorder kind of makes people do, if you will, is part of survival. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't helpful in some way, but there's there are better ways. We just don't know them yet. So that judgment just needs to, in my opinion, go away. This is why I say to clients, what is the function of your eating disorder? Once we name the function, and there's typically many, great. We're already one step closer to recovery because now I know the function for your, I'm going to say you, Monica, just using you as an example, um, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm just so Monica, I know one of the functions for you is safety. It is keeping you safe from physical harm. Again, making this up. Great. I want you to be physically safe as well. Let's find another way of getting it. Uh, for me, it was I had maturity fears. Great. I want to understand your maturity fears as well and sort of talk to that part of you as opposed to having it closed down by an eating disorder. Whatever it is the function is, let's talk to it. Let's give it tools. Let's give it nurturing. Well, I'm thinking, right? Because I'm thinking about the how it can function in different ways. So I think about so many, certainly myself and so many of our clients struggle with the idea of self-worth, of innate value. Like I literally went, lived on the planet for decades thinking I was a worthless piece of crap. You know, and I, I subscribed to the common denominator theory where all of these bad things happened. It must be me because I'm the common denominator. And as a result of that, I didn't have a voice. And when you don't believe you have value, it's very difficult to have a voice unless it's related to something impersonal, like, you know, something academic. It's very easy to argue on behalf of somebody else or to argue a point in political science. That's very different than trying to stand up for yourself and advocate for better care um, or to defend yourself when somebody is accusing you, whether it's of being manipulative or, you know, blaming you for your own trauma. 
the other thing I was going to add to that for some reason that just popped into my head was when I think when professionals and centers or wherever they might be that are using some of this kind of what I consider to be derogatory language in respect to our clients, a lot of times I honestly don't think that it's personal to the client themselves. A lot of times I think it is the clinician's um, insecurity and fears about their own skill set. You know, if I'm doing what I know to do and this person isn't getting better, it feels really crappy to think that maybe I'm not a good clinician. And that's not the case anyway. They're still a good clinician, right? They might need a different skill set. But it's so much easier sometimes, I think, to blame the patient or the client. But it's so damaging to blame the patient and the client. Like, I knew, you know, like, I was shocked. I went to speak for a program um, that was run by a woman that had actually treated me. And it was, I walked through the door, and within, like, three minutes of being there, she said, we all thought you'd be dead by now. I didn't even know how to process that at the time because that, you know, denial is a happy place. I never really thought that about myself. I can now looking back, I can certainly understand that and have an appreciation for it. But what I took away from that and what I think about now is if that was the hope that you held out for me, how in the world were you going to ever deliver effective care? You've got to have some belief in your client's capacity for change. And if not, what are you doing in the field? I also want to say, and this is pretty controversial, but if you don't, then you should maybe look into working for palliative care. And that is a viable option. And again, I I don't want to offend anybody, but if you lose hope in a client, you're exactly right. That's exactly right. What if, I mean, I do think about this sometimes. I went to, oh, when was it? The Freed Conference, where they were doing a lot of presentations on sometimes like the palliative care, some of the brain stuff. Um, and I, I can't remember who was speaking at the time, to tell you the truth. But I remember having this really, I think it was, I don't remember. Anyway, I was having this really strong reaction because they were talking about you know, needing to be really careful when we talk about palliative care for people, because, you know, there are differences in the brain and we don't have all of the treatments yet. We haven't discovered some of them yet and they're still coming. Anyway, long story short is what he was getting at was sometimes you can shuffle people into palliative care who have the ability to recover. Oh my God. And so I'm sitting at the table and I'm like, holy crap. You know, if, I don't know what it was about me internally, but I very easily could not be here today, right? And I could very easily have subscribed to palliative care and have died years ago. But I sat there thinking, oh my God, like I'm opening and leading treatment centers and helping other people get better and I'm okay today. Like we have to remember that everybody can do this. Like you don't have to go out, you know, and do all the things that I did. You do whatever makes you happy. That's what's important. But we really, really need to not lose sight of everybody's capacity for change. What do you think was instrumental? Because it sounds like, and and I'm going to, I have my own theory of what was instrumental for you, but I don't want to speak for you. What was instrumental for your recovery? Or was it a person? Was it a thing? You know, we often talk about the fact that it's not, it's very rarely 
one thing, but for some people, it really is. It's like, I had an aha moment and, you know, that's how some people define it or describe it. What was it for you? Probably three things. So the first was meeting a woman in a treatment program that I was in. That was actually a hybrid trauma and um, eating disorder program. And she was a woman who was recovered from her eating disorder with extensive trauma. And I have had a hard time finding people who have similar histories to me. And hers was close. And I remember she would start every morning, you know how we all have community meetings, right? So every community meeting, she would say, my goal for today is to be gentle with myself. And, you know, everybody else's goal was like to eat 100% or something. And I remember listening to her say that and kind of being like, huh. Like it just, it just made me kind of curious. And I didn't have any judgment in one direction for the other. It was just sort of like this concept was introduced to me. And I was in that program for quite some time because, you know, back in the day, you could stay in programs forever, pretty much. And I watched her deal with her feelings, her history, herself, very gently and very authentically. And I had never seen that before. I'd seen people be over-medicated. I'd seen all sorts of things, but I hadn't seen that. And when I left that program, uh, well, actually, before I left that program, she left that program, and she wrote a letter to about six of us, breaking up with us as friends, if you will. Um, And I probably still have um, some that letter around here somewhere today. But it talked a lot about how challenging it was for her to write that letter, but how important it was for her to build a life for herself outside of a hospital and to surround herself with people who could be gentle with their own hearts. And the people that she was writing letters with, we weren't there yet, right? And she was really compassionate and said things like, you know, I hope that you will find your voice. That is your basically your key to freedom. That, you know, the eating disorder is kind of predictable, but it also is present, it prevents you from filling your life with life-affirming connections of healthy relationships. And so she really introduced this whole other way of living that I was 100% foreign to me. I had no clue that you could live that way. And so I started doing some of my, some work on my own really about finding my value, finding some gentleness and compassion for myself. And I think that was key, like the key for many years. But then um, I unfortunately was a victim of a difficult crime. And so had a relapse in relation to that. And then the rest of my recovery kind of came in and working with this unbelievably talented dietitian who, as it turns out, also has a degree in counseling. So it makes sense why she was able to help, to help me so much. She was very direct. She didn't beat around the bush. Um, was able to point out ways where I had done well, but all of the gaps that I had in my recovery and those things together really delivered me to a place of good living. As always, there's a few things I want to say about that. I love how you talked about collecting things, whether it's skills or heart space, whatever, collecting, but throughout time. Because often people will say, if they've already been in treatment, what's the point? They've already been there, done that. And I say, no, 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 they're not the same person. First of all, it's impossible. 
life has has the sun rises every day. So something has changed in their relationship to themselves, to their eating disorder, whatnot. It's it's not a quick fix. It's about once getting a letter from somebody and being in the space where you can take it in a few years later, finding a dietitian that speaks to you in a way that you can hear. Like, so again, when people have said, why are they going back? I say, because what they've learned then, what, what clients learned two years ago is a totally different message to them now. And you collect this along the way. I know that it was different back when you were in hospitals. I know that now, gratefully, the field has advanced quite a bit where, you know, hopefully the trajectory is hospitalization, residential, PHP, IOP, outpatient treatment in order to gently titrate somebody back into society. I also know I have clients who have been in hospitals for a year at a time. How did you navigate coming back into the world after being in a hospitalized setting for such a long time? That in and of itself is shocking to the system, Monica. Well, it was ugly. (laughs) I can't say that it was easy. There's a place, you know, where you sort of, it becomes your life in a way. And I had I struggled so much with, you know, a number of things, right? There's eating disorder and PTSD and depression and blah, self-injury. And I remember between hospital, there was one year that I never left the hospital. I never saw the sun. Um, But most of the time there was like brief times in between, you know, but I remember how difficult it was. And my final hospital stay was actually the last one that I left where that that girl that I was telling you about had given us that letter, right? So I had a different framework in my head about and a different framework of how I was trying to view myself and where I was growing to. But I struggled a lot, you know, because I was behind my peers in terms of adult development, right? Like my peers had were having babies and they had bought houses and I wasn't even working. I, you know, I was on um, disability. I'd meet people that I hadn't seen for a while. And we, you know what we say to people, right? It's like, how, how are you? What have you been up to? And I would be like, oh, <laughs> I just like, I didn't even answer that question. Like, I don't want to be inauthentic, but I also, it's like, don't really want you to know, you know, where I've been. Um, so I got really good at sort of changing the subject a little bit until I could figure out a foothold for myself. And I, I did write the book, um, towards the end of treatment for me. So that was helpful. But a lot of it was really time and space. You know, I used to go for walks and I did a lot of thinking and a lot of writing, a lot of thinking and a lot of writing and a lot of goal setting. And for me, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a little bit um, cerebral, right? So I had, um, I'd actually show it to you, but I can't reach it from here. I found these two recovery scrapbooks that I had made throughout the end of my recovery. That was a lot of fun. So doing things like that helped me piece together who I am. Um, and I'm still, I don't know who I am. None of us know who we are. We continue to evolve. I love getting to know myself, right? I'm continuing to 
to be in that process. But it's jarring, right? You come up, you come from a place of being with people and providers, some are nice, some, you know, challenges, to a place of pretty profound loneliness and aloneness and the realization that was really challenging for me was realizing that I needed to, to basically do what that other woman had done and kind of remove myself from groups of friends where their life really was um, treatment and being ill in order to figure out how to fill my life with life-affirming connections of healthy relationships um, to set better boundaries around them. And that was a process that took, oh, let's see, probably a good two years. I think there's two things, well, the, the two things that you just brought up that again, listeners cannot see. So when Monica started talking about, you know, I came out, I was behind my peers, they were starting families, they were working. I like gave her the thumbs up because I was like, yeah, this is where we need to go. Because I always have clients in my mind when I'm, um, when I'm doing the podcast. And I have clients that are terrified to give up their eating disorder because they feel like, I am so many years behind my peers. It is never, life is never going to happen for me. And that is a tough nut to crack because I can say from my experience, I wasn't behind from my peers just because of my eating disorder, but also because of just my, my immature emotional development. I was a very, I was a young person for my age, right? Like I was emotionally not as developed. And it's easy for me to sit here and say, I promise you, doesn't matter. You're going to find it. And it's hard. I don't even, I'm not even, I don't even know where I'm going with this statement, but it's hard when clients are like, I'm 23 years old. I haven't finished college. My friends are, you know, getting married and engaged and pregnant and and I'm still a junior in college and I've been through treatment and it, yeah, it's hard and it's still worth it. I just can't say it enough, Monica. Go ahead. Yeah. It, well, you know, it's, so it's important to grieve, right? So it's, it's okay to be in that space where you're like, oh my God, all of my friends have babies and houses and I, you know, I'm living with my parents or I'm living in my car, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but life isn't a race. Like there isn't really a finish line that we're all running to. Like it's just sort of like this concept of healing, right? It's not really a destination. It's about the journey itself. So why would you want to deprive yourself of experiences that are your birthright? We are destined to evolve and grow as human beings right? To be expressions, in my opinion, I think we're all expressions of love and kindness. And how we do that is very individual and beautiful. Why in the world would you want to take that away from yourself just because you hit a number in your chronology on this planet? Does it matter if you're 23, 43, 63? Give yourself the experience. You know what your eating disorder feels like. It's pretty damn predictable, right? You get up, you're going to have a good day or a bad day, depending on what the almighty deity on the floor with a dial says. 
you know, or you look in the mirror and, you know, what you see or your perception of the shape of whatever, you know, fill in the blank triggered body part that you're dealing with, you know what that's like. Give yourself the experience of taking off that cloak of armor and being really you, vulnerable, authentic, real, and just an expression of love and begin to connect with other people in that way and see what happens. It's beautiful. I think the, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm using the term correctly, but the chronological time frame that people put themselves on is the same diet culture trajectory that people put themselves on that, you know, it is, it is another lane that we put ourselves in that we feel like if we've gone out of that lane, we've gone off the road, we can't get back on. And that's a myth. You know, I know for myself that my life grew exponentially. Is that how you say it? I can't say that word. Exponentially. Thank you. As I got older, as I was fully recovered. So, and this is my life story. This is my narrative and it doesn't have to match other people's. And by the way, I have no idea if what other people show me of their narrative actually makes them happy. I don't want to wish anything on others, but again, we get trapped in this idea that others have it right and that there is only one way of being. The other thing I wanted to point out is there are times when it's very healthy to stay friends with people or stay in relationship with people that you've been in treatment with. And Monica, there are also times when it is not in your best interest, the other person's best interest. And sometimes it's really important for people to say, I need to, I need to cut that out for right now because either you're triggering or you're still in a mindset that's pulling me in or you're still using eating disorder language or whatnot. That's hard, right? Because people also get really close in treatment. So that's a courageous thing that you did by saying like this other person, the the person who showed you that it was in her best interest, that was courageous for you to take that feedback and say, I'm going to do the same thing and say, I need to start my life set or I need to re-enter my life separately right now. It was part of just being, you know, kind of authentic to myself because what I was noticing is I really loved these people, but we would meet up and I was in a place where I was doing pretty well with nourishing myself and paying attention to my body's needs and they weren't. And what I was finding is when we were getting together you know, and I'm ordering a meal and having my meal and I'm looking at somebody, you know, basically eating lettuce and nothing else that it would, the little, you know, voice in the back of my head would start to pop up and I'd start to doubt myself. And I realized that I needed time to get a more solid footing for myself before I could be around that. And so it was kind of taking a break, but we all, you know, we grow and we change. And so those, I think those relationships also kind of naturally grew apart. Um, I am actually still in contact with one person that I had been um, in treatment with many years ago. We, we not frequently, but we've kept tabs on each other for many years. And 
that relationship has been different. But I think if you're paying attention to what you truly need to thrive and you make the decision that is best for you, everybody benefits. And that's not really what we're taught, but you know, it's the truth. And, and I think you, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head and I'm paraphrasing, but, or maybe I'm not, maybe I am speaking the words you spoke, but until you have a footing in your recovery, a firm, firm footing in your recovery, it is you're too and too vulnerable of a place to still be with people that are deep in their eating disorder or just in their eating disorder. It's, you know, it is very rocky throughout the process of getting to become recovered. And so anything that could potentially threaten that, you have to take care of self and say, you know what, I, 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 need, to, I need to look forward right now. I know this is sort of shifting into a different question, but you know, we are talking about clients with long-term histories of eating disorder treatments, things like that. What is it like for you working with a population of people with second to opioids? It's the high, it's the, so it's the second highest mortality rate. What is that like? What a privilege. What a blessing. Um, I guess I don't, I don't focus on that aspect of it. I just focus on who is in front of me and where we need to go together, you know, but what a blessing to be able to help. It's a gift. It really, it truly is. I, I have had people say when I've seen them years later, say to me, Karen, you saved my life. And Monica, that that is when I hear somebody say that, I am I am humbled with honor and 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 gratitude that they let me in to their life to help them. Go ahead, you like you're gonna say something. Yeah, like literally the it's the last part, you know. So I've I've heard people say that, I've had parents say that to me. And when the clients say that, I always say, No, I didn't. You saved your own. I just got to come along for a ride. And what an honor. Thank you for letting me witness that part of your process. You know, I'm not the one doing the work. They're the ones doing all the work. And people are, people are just really, really amazing. I think we have the best job on the planet. I really do. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else in the world. Um, you know, there is nothing... I, I think what I like to provide for my clients is just the compassion and non-judgment and hope that I wanted when, and by the way, when I had my eating disorder 30 years ago, I'm sure there were non-judgmental, compassionate people that had hope for me, but I never let them in. I, I didn't give them that opportunity. And so, you know, and and I think as a recovered person, you between our education and our training and our own experience it's it's a really beautiful dance and connection that we can make with the clients with their families um what do you think about working with recovered professionals clients working with recovered people i mean i think it depends on the professional right i mean we're all different and it's sort of you got to know when you are 
you've got to be able to separate yourself from your clients anyway. Like your process is not your client's process. And I know that the things that help me may not even necessarily help anybody else. You know, one thing I think is beautiful about people being able to work with um, professionals who are recovered is it almost feels like there's an immediate removal of shame. You know, kind of like they can tell you anything because they know you've pretty much probably done it yourself. So there's nothing to be ashamed of in terms of behaviors when you're working with somebody who's recovered or in recovery. Um, It's evolved a lot, I think, over the last at least the years that I have been in the field, you know, originally there's all this doubt when you say, you know, you're recovered from an eating disorder and you kind of get the hairy eyeball of like, but are you really, are you really? And should you really be working in this field? Like that used to drive me nuts. I'm like, I think it's amazing that you are somebody working in the field who's supposed to believe in capacity for change and you're doubting mine. What? That's nuts. That's crazy. I think recovered professionals are beautiful. I think In programs, you have to be really careful when you have recovered professionals and people who do not have recovery histories to not set up a power differential or this this class of uh, professionals is better than or somehow more knowledgeable than this class. Person who helped me the most was that dietitian. She didn't have her own history. You know, uh, I I have to imagine people are sick of hearing the name Anna Kowalski, <laughs> but I'm going to say the name Anna Kowalski in every episode. She's the 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 poster of the clinician who's never had an eating disorder, and is the best eating disorder therapist I've ever sat with. In fact, I had Anna on the show, and she never had an eating disorder. So it depends on it depends on the individual, it depends on the client, and it depends on the clinician having had an eating disorder or not. 100% agree with you. I've seen a lot. I'm sure you have too, right? I've seen recovered professionals come in. This is typically like in a program setting and really use their recovery as kind of like their whole, I'm going to call it a gig, (laughs) their whole gig. They're not really thoughtful about how they're weaving together interventions and modalities. And that I think can be dangerous. And I've seen some of those professionals become defensive and feel threatened by other professionals who are maybe a a little more able to weave together those interventions and modalities. But with awareness, right? It's It's about awareness. What's my stuff? When is it important to tap into my stuff? And when is it not? You know, when is it detrimental to tap into my stuff? And what are the modalities and interventions that are really helpful for people that are in my repertoire of skill set that I can use well. Then you're good. It's very important for clinicians to use critical thinking because we are, like you said, weaving together uh, thought patterns and narratives and traumas and histories. And there's so much more to the client than the eating disorder. And if the only tool that you're using is your recovered clinician and you're using just eating disorder framework, you're, you're not strengthening all the other parts of them. You're not, you're not honoring, like helping them grow all the other things outside of their eating disorder. And so it is so important. I I have sessions where I don't even talk about the eating disorders with the clients. Which is so important. Of course. And there's this 
I, I always think about the, I'm just probably no doctor, right? I think about the people that are trying to heal from PTSD and the eating disorder, you know, and how careful you have to be to navigate that so that the eating disorder is not triggering more trauma. The trauma is not triggering the eating disorder, but to, that you really learn how to take cues from the client to figure out where their distress tolerance patterns are, what their self-soothing capabilities are, what their grounding capabilities are, and really keep those strong while you're navigating healing trauma and the eating disorder. Otherwise, you've seen this, right? The person's in an eating disorder treatment and then trauma treatment back in eating disorder treatment. Like they can't. Yeah, it's whack-a-mole. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, being really careful about that is so important. It's so interesting. We used to do, and I was listening to another colleague of mine. I I, I want to share this little story, and then and then we're gonna have to start ending. Um, no matter how far along we are in the field, up, I'm gonna use my eye voice again. No matter how far along I am in the field, in my life, I still have fears that I'm not good enough or if I'm doing an intervention, it's not the right one, or, you know, we still have a little bit of that imposter syndrome. I was listening to a colleague of mine that I worked with about 12 years ago um, out in California. And one of the things that we, that one of the things we used to do is ask the clients to do a life map. And we would say to the client, from birth until the day you arrived at this facility, give us a life map, give us a time frame, pick out some significant things. And I used to always say, and not just your eating disorder, not just trauma. I want to hear about celebrations in your life. I want to hear about milestones that you, because by the way, once I know about those things, we can reflect back on that and say, wait a minute. No, no, no. You do have the inner strength because remember when you were 13, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. And so I thought that that was the way the assignment went. You did a life map. You talked about the things that got into your eating disorder and you talked about the positive things. That's That was my understanding for 12 years. I heard this colleague talking on another podcast and she said that she was the only one that incorporated positive things. I must've sat in while she was doing a group or something. She said, we are so conditioned to looking at all the things in your lifeline, that trauma, violence, this, that we forget to bring in the neutral, the positive, the mundane. And I thought, oh God, I did it like that all along. Whew, thank God. And then I thought, wow, I kind of did know what I was doing. I like, I incorporated that as well. It's, it's amazing. And, and I don't mean to be like tooting my own horn and being like, everybody, I, I knew what I was doing, but it is imperative. Like I said, we need to find out other parts of people's lives, the celebrations, the things that were just calm when in your life were things just stable? Because that's important too. I want to know about that. Then we get the whole self. I don't know if you had anything to say. And I, I apologize, everybody. That was a big ramble. <laughs> I, 
I love it. No, it's so, you're right though. It's how, how else can we help people feel whole if we're not re- able to reflect back to them their whole self? And it, they're more than just their eating disorder. You're more than trauma. You're more than whatever has happened to you, right? Like you're a, I think it was the first time I had heard it. I think it was uh, Lindsay Hall using it. Like we're called human beings for a reason. We're not human doings. So it's about you. I love that very much. Monica, I love having you on the show. Um, And so as a result, I am really sad to say we are going to have to start winding down. As you know, I have one final question that has nothing to do with eating disorders. But before I ask, is there anything that you want the listeners to know? Anything that I didn't ask you? Anything that you want to say? Not off the top of my head. Fantastic. All right. Monica, here is your final question. If you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? Comedy. Yes. <laughs> Hands down. I'm sorry. I didn't even have to think about that. <laughs> I love it so much. Any comedy in particular? Any kind of brand? Any any slapstick or, you know, uh, dark comedy? No, not dark comedy, something light, you know, we sort of were like everything, even the mundane becomes funny. When I was a kid or when I was growing up, I used to like the Goldie Hawn comedies. I love Goldie Hawn so much. By the way, I'm going to give a Goldie Hawn plug. And this was not really a comedy, but if anyone has a chance, see the movie Butterflies Are Free. Did you ever see that? I haven't, no. Goldie Hawn, I can't believe we're going into this whole thing. (laughs) I say we, it's just me. Goldie Hawn ends up renting an apartment next door to a blind man. And first of all, the best part is she doesn't know that he's blind at first and she's never been seen for herself. She's only been seen for her looks. So it's all about their relationship and his mother. It's fantastic. All right, butterflies are free. I'm, I'm that doing sounds a, great. So good. Sorry for ending like in a, in a movie note. I love it. I feel like we're rotten <laughs> tomatoes. Comedies are the best. Monica, I cannot thank you enough. It is so wonderful to sit and see your beautiful face and your soul and have this conversation with you. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to be able to spend time with you. I feel completely honored. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another week of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewis.com edc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week.